We are um, celebrating, we are observing um, the, the occasion known in the church as Transfiguration Sunday. And um, it, it commemorates the event we just heard about, um, the, the Transfiguration of Jesus. And that um, is obviously an important event. It's not something that happened every day. That's why uh, it appears in three of the biographies of Jesus that we find in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, the first three of those all record this event, this transfiguration. And the reason is because that was not something that happened to Jesus every day. Um, uh, but they don't explain what its significance is. They don't tell us why it's important that this happened or or what it even signified. And so as a result... Um, Christians for 2,000 years have proposed different um, theories or or uh, explanations of what was the significance of the transfiguration. Um, and and it, they've raised all kinds of interesting theological questions um, about it. Was this just a dream? Why, why do they stress that the disciples were, were groggy with sleep? Uh, maybe it's a dream. And, 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 you know, in the first century, dreams were not something people took lightly. Uh, if you think about uh, when Jesus is... Uh, 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 was being pursued by the uh, by Herod's men. Um, his father uh, Joseph took him to took him to Egypt because of um, because of a dream that had warned him that Herod was seeking the baby's life. So dreams were important in the first century, but um, but is this a dream? Is this is this some kind of a um, transformation that actually uh, Jesus underwent? Did he somehow change? Um, in, in his essence somehow? Or was it that his essence was always like this and now suddenly uh, the disciples got a glimpse of it? We have all kinds of questions about what exactly the transformation meant. And uh, people have been asking these sorts of questions for 2,000 years. And um, I think maybe that's part of the, the, the point is that, is that there are these occasions like this where, where the mystery and, and the depth and richness of God just invites us to spend our time um, wondering and imagining what is what is the significance of something that that we don't um, we shouldn't want a God who is simple to understand a God who you know we can figure out and you know say well okay I've got that one nailed and now let me move on to the next thing so so um, so a God should invite you know continued uh, devotion and reflection so so maybe that is the point um, but uh, before we do any more of that. I want to I want to make sure we don't move past the instruction because what we also see in the account of the transfiguration is that there is an audible voice from God that answers a question and and um, gives an instruction and that does not happen either every day that that happens from time to time but not every day um, we we uh, remember the transfiguration. Um, as the beginning of, of this season, uh, the end of this season that we began back in January as the other occasion where Jesus, um, uh, is, is, um, described by a voice from heaven. So, so these two, these two different, um, occasions in the church are times when, when a voice speaks. And so I want to look before we move on. What does the voice say? The voice says that this is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. So it answers a question, who is Jesus? And then it says what to do about Jesus. Now, now that you know who Jesus is, what should you do? Well, you should listen to him. So how do we listen to Jesus? Well, I think um, there's a lot of different ways we can listen to Jesus. We can listen to Jesus um, in uh, 
uh, in the church, in, in the, the celebration of the sacraments, for example, we're about to begin the season of Lent, where we, where as part of our Lenten observance, we will celebrate the sacraments every Sunday. So that's a place where we can, we can listen to Jesus. We can listen to Jesus, um, in fellowship with other Christians as we, as we communicate with the body of Christ. We can listen in the inward witness that the Holy Spirit, uh, uh speaks to us in our hearts and minds. But, the the paramount way that we listen to Jesus is in Scripture. Um, we we listen to Jesus in Scripture uh, because because um, because we should. And the reason I say that is because you know you know I think our culture has a has a tendency to privilege feelings. That if if I have a feeling of awe. If I go into my prayer room and I, I, I read the Bible and then I have a feeling of awe, then that is somehow a special time. Whereas if I just read the Bible and kind of learned some things and, and didn't, you know, the hair on my arms didn't stand up, then I say, well, yeah, you know, God didn't do anything that day, right? And so, so we tend to say that if we get a special feeling, if we get that religious tingle, then, then that's special. But reading the scriptures is not. But that's, but, so, so that's, that's the way our culture has taught us that, that the feelings matter more than, than, um, the, the information that is conveyed. But when we read the, the scriptures and when we look at our traditions, we see that that's not actually the way that the church has, has done that, has seen that. And the reason for that is because our hearts and our minds can wander. You know, our minds, you know, anybody, anybody who's tried to read Leviticus has probably had their mind water, wander. But our hearts can wander too. Our hearts can kind of say, well, you know, that looks shiny and interesting out that way. So, so we listen to scripture as a discipline because we want to hear Jesus. Um, the, the, the other problem with the, the listening to, um, uh, uh, the, the, the looking for feelings, looking for the religious experiences is they're, they're subjective. They're just for me. That, that, you know, I felt great, you know, I, I had a, had a religious tingle because, because God spoke to me. That doesn't do any good for you. But Paul says, we're in this together. He told, he told the, the church in Corinth, he said, since you're eager to have the special abilities that the Spirit gives, seek those that will strengthen the whole church. He said, look to, look to the whole church. We don't mind. We, we love the sound. Probably more than the, than mine. <laughs> so, 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 um, so, uh, so Paul says, seek, seek the things that strengthen the whole church. And, um, and, uh, so, so the way we do that is with scripture. Our traditions, uh, we, we have two different traditions about scripture. Um, one of them is prima scriptura and the other is sola scriptura. Prima scriptura is the, the, the tradition of, of how we interpret scripture that Methodists use. And it says, we look at scripture above all else. That scripture is above all else. And Presbyterians use the other one, which is called sola scriptura, which is to say scripture to the exclusion of all else. Not just above all else, but, but just ignore everything else or, or as much as that, that is possible. Um, it's hard to ignore your hair standing on end, but, um, but, but, uh, we might say, well, this is just one more example of how Christians can never agree on anything. But, but we're, we're, we're disagreeing about a, a fine detail. We're not, we're not disagreeing about the idea that scripture is the 
paramount way we hear from God. If we're going to listen to Jesus, we do that through Scripture. So what then is Scripture, and how do we listen to it? And this brings us back to the transfiguration, this event that happened with Jesus, because this helps to answer the question, what is Scripture, and how we can listen to it. And the way it does that first is by reminding us that Jesus is in continuity with the Old Testament. Jesus is not God's plan B. It's not as if God had plan A, and it worked on for a while, and then at some point God said, oh, well, this is just not going to work, and he came up with Jesus as a plan B. That Jesus is in continuity with the whole of the Hebrew Scriptures, the whole of the Old Testament. And the way we know that, uh, from this passage in particular, is we see Moses and Elijah who appear with and begin talking with Jesus. Uh, They were glorious to see, we read. So who are Moses and Elijah? Well, they are characters from the Old Testament. They are um, the the lawgiver, the man Moses who brought the law down from Mount Sinai, and Elijah, the greatest of the prophets in the Hebrew Scriptures. So these two men appear, and so we see them as as people from the Old Testament. So they are part of the story of Jesus. It's like if you're watching a TV show, and somebody who was on the show last season reappears, he's probably not a new guest star with a whole different character. He's not a whole different person. He is he is the same character he was in the last season. That's the idea. This is the same Moses, the same Elijah, and they're speaking to the same Jesus. So, so first, because we know that they are characters in the Old Testament, but also because the Hebrew Scriptures say they will return before the time of Christ. Um, in the case of Elijah, the prophet uh, Malachi was told by God, look, I am sending you the prophet Elijah before the great and de- dreadful day of the Lord arrives. He says, you remember Elijah? He, he ministered 200 years ago, 300 years ago, and he will come at the time uh, prior to the, the day of the Lord, that he will come again so that you can be warned of the coming of the Lord. So there is a prophecy in the Hebrew Scriptures that points to the, this, this occurrence of, uh, this appearance of Elijah. There's also one about Moses. Um, God says to Moses, and we read in Deuteronomy, God says, I will raise up a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites. I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell the people everything I command him. So both Elijah and Moses, there are prophecies concerning that say they will come, um, before, before Jesus is revealed. This is why when we read the, the biography that John wrote, the, the religious leaders went out to the desert when John the Baptist showed up and they said, they said, who are you? They, they said, are you Elijah? And he said, no. Well, are you the prophet we are expecting? And he said, no. That at the time of Christ, people were saying, when is Elijah coming back? Like the prophets he said he would. And they're saying, well, what about that other prophet, the one who would be like Moses? So there are these two prophecies that say that these two men will appear again. And so they are appearing here. So that's another way that they are in alignment with, uh, uh, that this is in continuation of the, the uh, Hebrew Scriptures. But there's one more. Moses is identified with the law because he brought the law down from Mount Sinai. And Elijah is identified with all of the other prophets because he's considered to be the greatest of the prophets. And in the Hebrews, the Hebrew Scriptures, if if... If you ask somebody what is what is, I'm trying to think of the word for it. We, we have a name for this book. It's a collection of 66 letters, uh, 66 different documents, letters, and so forth, and we call it the Bible. If this was a synagogue, the the 
the holy book that the Jews read is called the Tanakh, and that comes from the words that mean law, prophets, and writings. So the law, again, is associated with Moses. The prophets associated with, with um, Elijah. And the writings is just another way of saying whatever is left over, everything else. So there's the law, there's the prophets, and then we would say, etc. So the law, the prophets, etc. And um, so in shorthand, people would say the law and the prophets to, to refer to the, the Hebrew scriptures when, when, you know, if, if you're, if you're a Jew in the first century or today, you, you talk about the, the holy book is the law and the prophets. We see Jesus do this, um, in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writing of the prophets. I didn't come to abolish the Hebrew scriptures. He says, I came to accomplish their purpose. And he speaks to a, a different group of leaders in, um, John 5. He says, you search the scriptures. Because you think they, they give you eternal life. But the scriptures point to me. What scriptures is he talking about? He's not talking about the New Testament. The New Testament hadn't been written yet. When Jesus says this to the religious leaders, he's saying, the Hebrew scriptures, the scriptures you're already familiar with, they point to me. So, Jesus is in continuity with the Old Testament. But Jesus also illuminates the Hebrew scriptures. That it is in the light of Jesus, in the, in the light of Jesus, we understand the, the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, in a new way. So, if you're familiar with the, the Hebrew scriptures, if you've, if you've been reading your Bible and you've had those religious tingles sometimes, you've been reading it and you've found the sorts of things we see in the Old Testament. We see prophecies, we see promises, commandments, sacrifices. There's 613 commandments famously in the, in the Hebrew scriptures. And so we see all these things in there. And we understand them better in light of Jesus. For example, just, uh, and I can't go into all of it, but Paul says in his letter to the Romans, he says, he says, Christ came as a servant to the Jews to show that God is true to the promises he made to their ancestors. He said, he said, God had Jesus or, or, or encouraged, uh, um, uh, equipped Jesus, um, uh, sent Jesus into the world to fulfill a bunch of promises so that when Jesus showed up to do a new thing, people would not say, well, you can't trust God because he's always doing new things. That Jesus fulfilled promises and then did new things. That that Jesus showed that God is faithful, that God fulfills promises. In the letter to the Hebrews, we see um, uh, the writer there says the old system, the, speaking about the whole the whole set of commandments, the 613 parts of the law, uh, the old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. So why has the law been fulfilled in Jesus? Because it was only a dim shadow of the law that Jesus brings, the law of love. He says, uh, Paul says in the second letter to the Corinthians, he says, this is a covenant, this new covenant that we have with God is not of written laws, but of the Spirit. The old written covenant ends in death, but under the new covenant, the Spirit gives life. And then he says this, this is really neat. He says, the old way with laws etched in stone led to death, though it began with such glory the people of Israel could not bear to look at Moses' face. For his face shone with the glory of God, even though the brightness was already fading away. He refers back to this story in the, the Hebrew Scriptures, and he says, this is actually what we see in the Hebrew Scriptures is actually a, a, a metaphor for what God has done with the, the new covenant. And the story goes like this. Moses came down Mount Sinai carrying the two stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant. He wasn't aware that his face had become radiant because he had spoken to the Lord. 
So when Aaron and the people of of Israel saw the radiance of Moses' face, they were afraid to come near him. He said, you look different, Moses, and not in a good way. And so he would put in a veil, and then the people of Israel would see the radiant glow of his face. He'd put on the veil over his face until he returned to speak to the Lord. When he went back into the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he'd take the veil off. But whenever he was out in public, he would put it on because it, it unnerved people that somebody could could have their face changed the way Moses was. So Paul uses this as an example of how the, the New Testament sheds light the, 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 the witness that we have in the New Testament to Jesus sheds light on the Old Testament. But it also points our attention back at the transfiguration. Because we saw that Jesus was transformed. As he was praying, the appearance of his face was transformed and his clothes became dazzling white. And the Apostle Peter refers to this in his letter. He says, we saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes when he received honor and glory from the Father. But two other people were there with Peter, James, and John, and they also were glorious. Because remember, it says, suddenly two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared and began talking with Jesus, and they were glorious to see. They were glorious. What is, what is glory? Glory is, is the nearness of God. Glory is uh, the weight of the reality of God landing on us. God is two things at once. God is, God is holy. That means God is, is unfathomably different. He's nothing like us at all. God is, is, is better and, and, and completely unlike us. God is radically different. That means God is holy. But God is also glorious. God is, is right there. Uh, heaven and earth are filled with God's glory. Here, here's an analogy. A police car is different from a regular car. A police car has a better engine. It's got different paint. It's got it's got um, a light on top. It's allowed to to break rules about going through intersections and things like that. So police cars are different. It is a holy car, okay? A police car is a holy car because it's radically different from regular cars. But glory is when you look in your rearview mirror and there's a police car there, <laughs> and and you have that moment where the hair stands up. Right? You experience the glory of the police car. So the glory of God is that moment where, oh, oh my goodness. Right? That's glory. Holiness is the radically different character of God. So the far and the near together. And we read that these men were glorious. They were reflecting the glory of God. Not just Jesus, but also Moses and Elijah. A leader in the early church was a man named um, Irenaeus, he died about 200 AD. And he said this, he said, the glory of God is man fully alive. That among all the other theories, what, what exactly is going on in the, in the transfiguration? Is this a sneak peek at who Jesus really is? Is this a vision of, uh, it's just a dream and it has no, no, uh, one-to-one, uh, alignment with anything in, in, in this world? Is it just a dream? Is it, is it a sneak peek at who Jesus really is? Did Jesus change from what he was into something else and then he changed back when he was done? There was all these different theories and there still are and, and there's good arguments for a lot of them. But Irenaeus said that what the transfiguration is, is the glory of God is, Jesus is, he's not, he's not looking like, he's not, he's not, um, having it rest on top of him and kind of disguise him. He says that the glory of God is a fully alive man. He says, he says the glory of God is a man fully alive. 
And when we see Moses and Elijah that are also glorious, it is because they are reflecting God. They are doing what they were made to be. We think of Jesus, and, we, and I think we, we instantly go to the, the divine Jesus. We think the divine Jesus glows because in every every painting I've ever seen with God, you know, he's sitting up there in the cloud and there's, you know, shining lights coming from him. So I think the reason that Jesus is glowing here, the reason Jesus is shining here, is because that's the God aspect of Jesus. But before you seize on that, think about this. Moses and Elijah glowed too. They were glorious. Maybe the point of the transfiguration, maybe the point that 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 we are directed to by Irenaeus and others, is this is what humans look like in the presence of God. Apart from our sin, when when Christ has purified us, when Christ has made us one with him, as he is one with the Father, that this is what we are like, that we are made to glow. We are made to shine. The prophet Daniel says this, those who are wise will shine as bright as the sky, and those who lead many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give praise, uh, give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That, think about that. Think about the idea that you were made to reflect God's glory. You were made to be glorious. You were made to be like Moses and Elijah, to reflect the glory of God. I think this is part of what Jesus is getting at when he says the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy, but my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. And Jesus doesn't mean lazing on the beach, you know, with a cool drink. Jesus says you are made to shine. That is, that is the life that Jesus offers. Not simply a, a relaxation and comfort, but a life shining. He says the same sort of thing in John 15. He says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. When you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. That you not only reflect the glory of God out into the world, but you reflect it back at God. This brings great glory to my Father. We're entering a season of Lenten discipline. That'll happen starting at our Ash Wednesday service on, on uh, Wednesday, but it'll go on for the next 40 days plus Sundays. Um, it'll go on until Easter. And I think Lent has a bad rap. Lent is, is thought of as this time when we're supposed to be gloomy. But how about, how about this idea instead? How about instead of being gloomy, how about if we say during Lent, I'm going to be glorious? During Lent, I'm going to seek to reflect the glory of God in the world around me. I'm going to seek, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not expecting us to shine, but I don't know. I do know that the glory of God is a man fully alive. I do know that Jesus made, uh, Jesus came so we could have a rich and satisfying life. And so during Lent, spend some time listening to God, listening to Jesus, reading the scriptures, and asking yourself, am I shining? Because it is God's will for you to shine. If you're not shining, ask God, make me shine. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, the the depth and the richness of the transfiguration, like uh, every other aspect of Jesus, is more than our minds can can comprehend. But we thank you, Lord, that um, it appears uh, not just in one account, but in three biographies of Jesus, inviting us to spend the time to to contemplate what does it mean or or what is at least one aspect of what it means. Lord, help us to appreciate the glory that Jesus represents, but help us also to appreciate the glory that he reflects as a human so that we can seek to do the same in our own context. Lord, help us each to shine the way that Jesus said we should. We pray it through Christ our Lord. Amen.